Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 16. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. And while you're finding that passage, I wanted to give you a little news bit. This past November, a young couple in New York, Gerald and Lindsay LaSanta, they had everything to celebrate. Gerald had just successfully become a New York City firefighter, and Lindsay had just given birth to their first child, precious little girl they named Jay Natalie. Well, in late March of this year, Jay Natalie developed a fever, and because she already had a heart condition, this was very concerning, and in fact, fluid was beginning to build in her lungs. But soon her condition began to improve, her lungs were clearing. And all of a sudden, without warning, Jay Natalie's little heart stopped. She couldn't be resuscitated, and Jay Natalie died from complications brought on from having contracted the coronavirus. I don't know the LaSanta family, but my heart went out to them when I read of this, and I can only imagine in some small, shadowy way what kind of pain they must be in even now. And I wish by some means that they might even get to hear this message to be encouraged But the loss of a little one like little Jay Natalie is, in many estimations, the most devastating human loss, human emotion that can be experienced. Some of you listening to this right now know this all too well. It's not something you recover from. It's not something you get over. It's not something that ever really stops. That child lives in your heart and that pain is part of who you are for the rest of your life. And it's in those most awful of moments, those terrible times, that as human beings we become very vulnerable to questioning God, to asking God, why did you do this? What did I ever do to you? And even regenerate believers in Christ, born-again Christians, we can stumble hard in moments like these and we too can ask questions like, I thought you were my father. I thought... You were my heavenly daddy, Abba. What kind of father would do this to me? And your faith is tested to the deepest part of your souls. And now we ask the question which humanity has been asking for millennia, that if God is perfectly good, and if God is all-powerful, then why does God allow evil and heartache to this level? Well, the quick answer we know theologically is, Because sin exists. And because sin exists, pain exists. But the Christian might say, but I've been redeemed from my sin. My sins have been paid for by the death of Christ at the cross. Well, the better answer to the question, if God is perfectly good, if God is all-powerful, why does evil exist? The better answer is, because God has purposes and plans far beyond anything we can possibly comprehend. And these plans include the presence of pain. Or to put it simply, we have a big God. We have a big God. Last week I started a a tiny series I've called Our Big God. And the purpose has been to examine first the sovereignty and then the providence of God in light of recent events. And this morning I want to test what we learned last week about the sovereignty and the providence of God Last Sunday morning, we learned that the sovereignty of God is God's right and his power to do whatever he decides to do. And in the evening, we learned that the providence of God 
the providence of God is the working out of the sovereignty of God, most often in ways we can't see, we can't fully comprehend. And we took as our home base verse, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, I propose this morning to test to see if the sovereignty and the providence of God holds up. I want to do a test case on sovereignty and providence And I've chosen to use this most tragic of all events, the death of a baby. To see if truly for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So what about babies who die? What about them? Well, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 2. And this is taking place some months after the birth of Christ. Christ the Messiah, and now the wise men from the east have come to worship Christ. They've been helped by Herod, but Herod's motive was sinister. The wise men were warned by God in a dream not to return to King Herod, and so they went home without seeing him. Again, as Herod had requested, tell me where Jesus is that I might worship him, but he had sinister motives. And as soon as they left the little abode of Joseph and Mary, Joseph then was warned in a dream to take Mary and Jesus and to flee to Egypt, to run away. King Herod was about to search for Jesus in jealousy to murder him. And we pick up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. She refused to be comforted. This is tragedy on a level that we can't comprehend. It's, a, it's tragedy where there's no silver lining. There's no good part. This is where all hope now seems lost. And Rachel is now pictured as the representative of all the young mommies of Bethlehem and the surrounding region who are sobbing uncontrollably and having just had their baby boys and their toddlers ripped out of their arms and slaughtered with the sword. Where was God then? Why had God abandoned them? What had those babies ever done to deserve that? Well, to begin our test case, we need to now return to the portion of Jeremiah, which Matthew referenced in verse 18. So turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And we'll look at verse 15 in a moment. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to present an argument. And I want to present an argument in favor of the goodness of of God in his sovereignty and in his providence that Romans 8.28 is in fact true, even in the most hopeless circumstance, even in the most tragic situation. And so to work our way through this argument, through this test case, I'm going to give you a series of statements as they unfold in Scripture. And these are going to be if statements. If statements, and our conclusion will be a then statement, the outcome of our test case. So my hope is to prove to you that the if statements are true, 
Because if they are, that will ensure that the final then statement is true as well, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that God can be trusted. Even when it seems like he's inflicting the most severe human pain imaginable, he is good, he is righteous, he knows what he's doing, and everything will work together for good. But what I'm going to do is I'm not going to give you each if statement up front. I'm going to present you the evidence for each if statement and then give it to you after that. So I'll give you the evidence for the first if statement, then give you the statement. Then I'll present evidence for the second if statement and give you the second if statement and so forth. So first, let's look at evidence for our first if statement, and then I will name it for you. Evidence for our first if statement. Now, this section of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 is the center section of the book. And it centers on historical events happening right at the time. Jeremiah lived through the multiple invasions of Babylon into the southern kingdom of Judah. Babylon invaded in 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and finally destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And in each instance, exiles were taken back to Babylon. But Jeremiah's record of the word of the Lord, as we're going to see, it really seems to cover more ground than just the Babylonians. It seems to be broader than this. So let's have the text unfurl a little bit before us. There are some important elements we need to see, first of all, in verse 15. And this is going to be familiar to you. Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is the Lord speaking. This is an oracle concerning events happening to his people, specifically judgments coming upon the Jews because of their covenant treachery, their covenant unfaithfulness. And verse 15 here records the most bitter of all griefs and pains, the pain of a mother losing her children. And this mother is Rachel. You remember Rachel from the book of Genesis. She is the true love of Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the patriarch of Israel. To Jacob would be born the 12 sons who would comprise the tribes of Israel. But young Rachel's life was one filled with tragedy. Because of the trickery of her father, she had to share Jacob with her older sister Leah. Her sister Leah had many children Easily, while Rachel went a long time before ever having her first child in a culture where having children was everything for the family's future. Rachel's first child, of course, was Joseph. Her second child was Benjamin, and the birth of Benjamin was her undoing. She died shortly right after his birth. In fact, at his birth, she was so distraught that she had named him Ben-Oni, son of my pain. Those were her last words on this earth. But Jacob changed it to Benjamin, son of my right hand. Rachel died in sorrow. She never saw the growth of her family. She never saw the desires and hopes that she must have had as a young woman building her family. A very poignant picture of unfulfilled hopes, unfulfilled dreams, unfulfilled desires. Rachel is well remembered for her determination to have children. Genesis 30, verse 1, she says to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. She wanted babies. And having children was really the great trial of her life. First, she couldn't have them. And then in having only her second child, 
She died in birthing him. And now she's pictured as grieving the loss of her children. And we have these otherworldly sounds of of bitter weeping, the weeping of Rachel, uh, almost pictured as the ghost of Rachel, so to speak, and they're heard in Ramah. These sounds of weeping. Ramah was a town about five miles north of Jerusalem, and there is some debate as to whether or not Rachel's tomb is in Ramah or closer and nearer to Bethlehem. There's much more evidence for Bethlehem, but that debate doesn't help us today. It doesn't matter. The text simply says that the voice of Rachel is heard in Ramah. Weeping for her children. Okay, all of a sudden, this gets very meaningful. This gets very significant. Why does the text not say Leah is weeping for her children? I mean, after all, Rachel's sister Leah personally gave birth to six of Jacob's sons. And one daughter, by the way, six of the tribes of Israel. While Rachel only gave birth to two children. Why does it not say Leah is weeping for her children? Well, first of all, Rachel's life was much more tragic than Leah's. Rachel died young. She never saw her family grow. Her last act on this earth was to proclaim the agony of her life. And so she really is the perfect representative of grief and sorrow as a mother. Another reason this is about Rachel. Rachel's firstborn, Joseph, would be the father of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh would become part of the northern tribes of, of the split kingdom of Israel, while her second son, Benjamin, would remain part of the southern kingdom of Judah. And guess where Ramah is? Ramah is in the territory of Benjamin in the south, right at the border of the territory of Ephraim, Joseph's son. So in other words, Ramah is the perfect representation of what any mother wants. All of her children being brought together. But not only were her children separated when the kingdom split after the reign of Solomon, now Ramah becomes a place of Rachel's agony. Why is Ramah the place of her agony? Well, Jeremiah 40 verse 1 tells us that Ramah was the place where the Jews were gathered by the Babylonians before they were exiled in chains. Symbolically, this is where Rachel said goodbye to her children for the last time. This is where the Jews were taken off to a foreign land. Rachel lost her babies at Ramah. Rachel, the mother of the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh through her son Joseph, and the mother of the southern tribe of Benjamin, is pictured weeping on the border of the two kingdoms. And in fact, this is phrased here in verse 15 broadly enough in terms to to assert very easily that this could also cover her weeping for the 722 B.C. invasion of Assyria, which carried off her northern children, as well as the final 586 invasion of Babylon, which carried off her southern children. Her babies are exiled. And that brings us to our first if statement. Based on all the evidence I just gave you, here it is. If Rachel's weeping is for her exiled children. If Rachel's weeping is for her exiled children. Now let's examine evidence for our second if statement. Our first one again. If Rachel's weeping is for her for exiled children. Let's examine evidence for the second if statement. And then I'll give it to you shortly. The Lord now continues speaking. And he's speaking to Rachel. Which this is by the way. This is evidence for eternal life beyond the grave. He's speaking to Rachel. Who's long since dead. 
and he's giving her hope, he's going to say, dry your tears, Rachel. Look with me at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. God is telling Rachel she has no need to weep. Verse 16, they shall come back. Verse 17, your children shall come back to their own country. This is spoken to a mother at home who's looking out the window, waiting for her babies, waiting for them to return. By the way, did you notice how God elevates and honors the mere act of having children? Verse 16, there is reward for your work. God is promising Rachel reward for having Joseph, reward for having Benjamin. And she's promised reward beyond her lifetime, having died in the birth of Benjamin. In eternity, she can expect reward from God. But at this moment, her reward is a repentant set of children coming home. Exiles who have repented. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Ephraim, the largest tribe, is often used as kind of a nickname for all of Israel, And so now Israel is humbly telling about how the exile has impacted the nation. Israel says, I was like an untrained calf, bouncing around, not doing what the master bids. But now Israel has been humbled by the exile. Verse 19, I struck my thigh. This is something akin to beating your breasts in agony and in humiliation and in repentance. And so now Israel has promised to behave there will be now spiritual transformation. At least that's what they promise. And now God assures Israel that she will in fact return. Verse 20, God declares his love for Israel. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. And then in verse 21, God basically says, Pack your bags and and put up some road signs to know the way home. You're coming home. Verse 21, set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these, your cities. He says, put up signs so that everyone knows the way home. So here's our second if statement. Our second if statement. And if God promises that Rachel's exiled children will come home, and if God promises that Rachel's exiled children will come home. So far, what do we have? First, if Rachel's weeping is for exiled children. Second, and if God promises that Rachel's exiled children will come home. Well, let's look at evidence for our third if statement And then we'll add that to our list. The exile was meant to preserve Israel. It was meant to lead her to humbly repent. Israel had been disciplined. It was fatherly discipline based in love, grounded in the covenant relationship that God has established with his people. 
But now God has promised Rachel, as it were, that her children would come home, a remnant would return. And yes, many exiles returned under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra. But the spiritual transformation, which was supposed to go along with that rescue, it fell flat. At first, the exiles were humble. They were eager to serve the Lord. But then, even the returned exiles, they again turned away from their God. In Ezra's day, a report came to him that the men of Israel were intermarrying with the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and several other surrounding peoples. Now, just to be clear, God's offer of salvation from sin was open to those peoples as well. But they could only receive that grace by joining the covenant community of Israel. But by intermarrying, Israel was slowly going to cease to exist as a nation. There wouldn't be a chosen nation anymore. And in fact, Ezra 9 verse 4 says that many, quote, trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles. Therefore, the return of the exiles cannot be the full fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 16, and 17 and, and following where Rachel's grief has turned to joy. There must be something else. Something's missing. There must be a further fulfillment. Now, some would say that this fulfillment of spiritual transformation is happening in the church age right now. But in the church age right now, almost all Jews reject Christ as Messiah The current nation of Israel certainly isn't a Christ-following nation by any measure, by any standard. So there must be a further fulfillment of Rachel's children coming home. As a matter of fact, much of the rest of Jeremiah chapter 31 proves to us that the true fulfillment cannot be, it absolutely cannot be, merely the return of a few thousand exiles in the 6th and the 5th centuries B.C. This must be a future kingdom which hasn't happened yet. Let me show you this. First of all, What's the spiritual context? The spiritual context is the new covenant. When the exiles return from Babylon, they're still under the old covenant given through Moses. But now, look at chapter 31, verse 31. One of the most famous passages in our Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And listen to this. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant, verse 31, is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This cannot be symbolic of the church age. This is a highly technical, specific designation for the Jews. Verse 32, God says this covenant is not like the old covenant. Well, what's different? Well, the Old Covenant had conditions imposed and there was a, 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 an expiration date. The, the New Covenant is unconditional and will never expire. Verse 33, he says that I will put my law within them. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit writing the law of God 
on their hearts. They'll be filled with a holy desire and a holy capability to obey the Lord. And what will this do? This will create harmony and joy and blessing. In fact, verse 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. What does this mean? It means you won't be evangelizing because all of Israel will be saved. What a great day that will be. Now, you might say as an astute Bible student, but wait a minute, aren't we under the new covenant now? Yes, much of the new covenant has come now. The cross of Christ made the old covenant expire. The people of God, as expressed in the church, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The same promise here. We do have the law of God written upon our hearts. But for Israel as a nation, as a national entity, the entire fulfillment of the new covenant is yet to happen. And we can prove this right here from Jeremiah 31. The rest of the chapter indicates that when Israel as a nation is under the new covenant. This is a kingdom time, a new time that that hasn't happened yet. In fact, go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 1. Let's see that this is a kingdom time, a time that hasn't happened. Chapter 31, verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. This is speaking of a total regathering of the people of God. This isn't By the way, a guarantee of the personal salvation of every single Jew. Many times the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament speaks of the remnant, the saved nation of Israel. But this speaks of a time when those who will make up the nation have repented. When Zechariah 12.10 has happened, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child as one weeps over a firstborn. This speaks of a time when, like Rachel wept for her children, Israel will weep for the death of Christ and they will repent. And the Lord's love here is expressed as eternal love for his chosen nation. Look at the second part of verse 3 of chapter 31. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. In verse 4, he promises to rebuild the nation. Verse 4, again, I will build you and you shall be built. O virgin Israel, again, you shall adorn yourself, yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. And you notice what he called her? He said, O virgin Israel, the purified one, the forgiven one, the unsullied one, the holy one, completely restored. Now you might still be saying, well, this is all just symbolic of internal spiritual transformation. Well, look at verse 5. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. This is land. And then during this kingdom time, how do we know this is time of the kingdom? Because the king is here. And every once in a while, hang on to your hats here. Every once in a while, people will decide to take a trip to Jerusalem so that they can visit God. Look at verse 6. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. How can they do this? 
Because after the return of Christ, Zechariah 12, verse 14, rather, verse 9, says that the Lord will be king over all the earth. So when they say, let's go to Jerusalem to the Lord our God, what are they saying? Let's go see Jesus. Now, I know that some may have trouble reconciling that God has saved the Gentiles in the age of the church and yet still has a special plan for his people of Israel, the ones through whom Christ was born. But verse 7 explains quite easily the relationship of the saved Gentile nations in the future and the saved Israel of the future. It's very simple. Look at verse 7. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Did you catch that? Israel, Jacob, is the chief of the nations. In other words, Israel is the capital of the new kingdom of Christ. Zechariah 14 tells us that nations will bring tribute and offerings to Christ in Jerusalem. This is a very simple geography lesson. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and Israel is the capital of the world. Verse 8 again confirms this is a future regathering. Verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor, together a great company. They shall return here. This is God having mercy on all the suffering of his people. Israel was exiled and Rachel wept. And now they will return and they will weep as well. Verse 9, with weeping they shall come. With pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. He said, with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. What is this? That is an Old Testament phrase for repentance. They'll repent. And again, the theme of total regathering in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. And now one of the happiest pictures of a future, physical, in the land, messianic kingdom packed into a few short verses, a time after our current age, but before the final state of the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 11, For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. What a glorious day, singing and dancing and making merry and abundance and worship and joy and satisfaction. In the verse 20, skipping ahead, God declares how he longs for his people in this time. Look with me at verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. 
declares the Lord. There's that yearning. There's that, that hope that God has that he'll be reunited with his people. And it is a certain hope because he's the one making it. And again, we come to the encouragement of uh, to come home in verse 21, setting up the road markers. But notice that God is calling Israel, O virgin Israel, the transformed nation hasn't happened yet. And again, this fulfillment is where? In the land, verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more, they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together. And the farmers and those who wander with their flocks For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. There is nothing in the text that tells us that that's symbolic. This is a real time in a real land. But there's one phrase in chapter 31 that is the clincher. It definitely tells us that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Rachel that her children will return cannot be merely the return of from exile a few centuries before Christ. And this unusual phrase is found in verse 22. And it's a proverb. Verse 22 says, How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. And here's the proverb. A woman encircles a man. The Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. A lot of ink has been spilled over this phrase. It's a very mysterious, enigmatic phrase. Many possible options have been offered in the past, but here's what we do know. What God is trying to get across here is that it means something amazing and never before seen is going to happen. So what does it mean? One ancient interpretation going back to the early church fathers is that this is speaking of the virgin birth of Christ. That's a lofty interpretation, but it doesn't hold water. The context doesn't make sense. It uses the most generic word for woman, and it doesn't refer specifically to a virgin. And in circles, literally surrounds, never refers to the conception of a child. So kind of a nice try, but uh, that doesn't hold water. Another view is that this is simply a woman protecting a man, the physically weaker sustaining the stronger one, that has nothing to do with anything happening in chapter 31. Another view sees this as virgin Israel, purified now to return to the Lord. This does have possibilities because it fits with verse 4 and verse 21 in which the Lord calls her virgin Israel. But again, the verse itself in verse 22 doesn't say that. Another option is that as the Lord has pursued Israel, so now finally Israel will will pursue the Lord. Now we're getting warmer. But the best option is to consider simply the context. What is the context? It is the coming new covenant. What is it that made the new covenant possible? What made the new covenant possible is the Lord God descending to his people, to their level, limiting himself to the point where his people can take hold of him, literally encircle him. John 1.14, the word became flesh. The point is, the new thing is that God became what we are so that he might make us what he is, righteous, holy, and pure. Did you catch that? The new thing is that God became what we are. He came in the flesh. 
in order to make us what he is, righteous, holy, and pure. This is the new thing. No more approaching God in the temple. No more with a curtain between you. No more with the fear of retribution for your sin. Now the woman, Israel, may freely approach God. Why? Because he's there in the person of Jesus Christ. Just like verse 6. Hey, let's go see God. That's the new thing. So what's our third if statement? Here's our third if statement. And if... Rachel's exiled children are truly coming home in Christ's future kingdom. I know that's a mouthful. Let me say it again. And if Rachel's exiled children are truly coming home in Christ's future kingdom, here's what we have so far. If Rachel's weeping is for exiled children, and if God promises that Rachel's exiled children will come home, And if Rachel's exiled children are truly coming home in Christ's future kingdom, let me give you evidence now for our fourth and final if statement, and then I'll give it to you. Turn back now to Matthew chapter 2. Now we go back to Matthew chapter 2. Now we started in Matthew 2 concerning the slaughter of every baby and toddler boy in and around Bethlehem. And again, we see in Matthew 2, 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. There's some definite connections between the exile of Jeremiah and the murder of these babies. In both cases, Rachel figuratively continues to grieve. In both cases, the solution was the promise to bring about the repentance and the restoration of Israel through a descendant of David, Jesus Christ. In both cases, the lamentation and the grief is promised to be turned into rejoicing in Christ. Both have new covenant links. Jeremiah 31.9, Israel is called the firstborn son, that's said of Christ. Ephraim, often the nickname for Israel in Jeremiah 31.20, is called my dear son, my darling child. See also, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The point is, is that Rachel's tears of the exile find their ultimate expression in the tears of the mothers in Bethlehem at the murder of their precious baby boys. Now, Jeremiah 31.15, the Old Testament original giving of this little poetic text most definitely speaks in the near term of Rachel's grief over the exile of her children that's the near fulfillment but like many Old Testament prophecies the New Testament contains a higher and a loftier fulfillment either directly about Christ himself or a situation surrounding Christ Matthew's inspired text sees these two events as parallel and they're joined at the hip you can't get away from that Matthew makes certain we know that And we should also note that Matthew's method of quoting an Old Testament text, this one in particular, it doesn't automatically mean that this is a direct fulfillment found only in one event. As a matter of fact, we have another example right before it. When Herod was searching to kill Jesus, an angel of the Lord instructed Joseph to take Jesus to Egypt. And look with me at Matthew 2, verse 14. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. 
Here it is. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is a citation, a reference to Hosea 11, verse 1, which to the original reader was obviously speaking of God calling Israel out of Egypt at the Exodus. And that's true. That's what Hosea 11.1 1 means. But the ultimate picture, the, the final iteration, the final fulfillment, this is a picture of God calling His Son, Jesus Christ, out of Egypt. Little Jesus going back to Israel, to his people, so that he could grow up, so that he could live among them, so that he could begin his ministry, so that he could be arrested, so that he could die, so that he could be raised from the dead, so that he could ascend into heaven, such that he could act as our advocate before the Father, such that he could one day get on his white horse and return to the earth, being the king over all the earth. The ultimate fulfillment didn't change the original meaning, but it gave it more depth. It gave us fuller understanding in what would now be regarded as the ultimate fulfillment. So, yes, Jeremiah 31.15 is speaking first of the exiled Jews, but Matthew 2.17 and 18 confirms that the ultimate, the new covenant centered on Christ's fulfillment of Rachel's weeping came not at the loss of the exiles, but at the murder of these helpless babies and toddlers in and around Bethlehem. And these little babies and toddlers quite literally died for Christ. So here's our fourth and final if statement. And if the slaughter of Matthew 2, 17 and 18, and if the slaughter of Matthew 2, 17 and 18 is the ultimate fulfillment of Rachel's grief, one more time, and if the slaughter of Matthew 2, 17 and 18 is the ultimate fulfillment of Rachel's grief. Now we have to go back to Jeremiah 31. Turn with me back to Jeremiah 31. Here are our if statements. We're going to put them all together concerning what happened to the dead babies of Bethlehem. Let's walk through these. If Rachel's weeping is for exiled children... And if God promises that Rachel's exiled children will come home, and if Rachel's exiled children are truly coming home in Christ's future kingdom, and if the slaughter of Matthew 2, 17 and 18 is the ultimate fulfillment of Rachel's grief, then what happens to those babies who died in Bethlehem? Here's our then statement. Then the slaughtered babies of Matthew 2, 16 are also coming home in Christ's future kingdom. How do I know this? Verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Listen, if the death of the boys of Bethlehem is the ultimate fulfillment of Rachel's grief, then the return of the boys of Bethlehem in Christ's future kingdom must be the ultimate fulfillment of Rachel's joy and delight and hope. The little boys of Bethlehem died because Herod was trying to kill Jesus. And you might ask, what function did that serve in the sovereignty and the providence of God? Listen. 
The babies and toddlers of Bethlehem died so that Jesus might live. So that Jesus could grow up and die so that you and I might live. So that those babies might live. So that the sins of all whom God chooses to place His grace and His mercy upon would be forgiven and eternal life imparted instead. So obviously the implications of this whole story is that babies who die go to heaven. God's sovereignty and His providence are vindicated. Now you might say, I I don't think that alone proves that babies go to heaven. I do think it proves it, but just to make sure, we've talked about these before, I want to give you ten other reasons that babies go to heaven. This, by the way, includes those incapable of making moral choices, such as the severely mentally handicapped. I'm just going to give you ten quick reasons. The first one is that infants, and I'll argue small children and mentally handicapped and so forth, infants, although they're sinful by nature, they haven't actively rebelled against God. They haven't actively rebelled. God will clearly judge the lost based on their actions. Revelation 22.12 says this. Revelation 21 says this. An infant, though born under the curse of sin, hasn't yet shaken his fist at God. In fact, in Jeremiah 19, verse 4, God calls children killed at an early age innocent. He says they are the innocents. This doesn't mean they don't have a sin nature, but they haven't been capable of actively rebelling and rejecting God. Let me give you a second reason. In Deuteronomy 1.39, God describes children as, quote, having no knowledge of good and evil. They have no knowledge of good and evil. Deuteronomy 1.39. Now, they have a sin nature. If you've had children, you know they have a sin nature. But while they're automatically drawn to sin, they don't actively seek it out. They don't run to sin like adults do. Children sin because foolishness abides in the heart of a child. Adults sin because they know the truth and they want to. And they reject God outright. Romans 1.18 says this. Infants and small children sin because they don't have the ability to discern right from wrong. There's a massive difference. There's a third reason. God in his mercy can ordain that all in this category are elect. That all in the category of the innocent are elect. In fact, the Westminster Confession affirms this belief as well. Here's a fourth reason, and this is my favorite one. And that is that infants go to heaven simply because of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Enough said. Because of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, Infants enter into heaven as a matter of free grace with no reference to anything they have done. Here's a fifth reason. We have the two examples of men chosen for salvation and confirmed in this before their births. John the Baptist and guess who? Jeremiah the prophet. There's a sixth reason. We have the case of King David's baby who died. David said with certainty that he would see his child again. 2 Samuel 1223, this was the response of a godly man confident in the grace of God toward his infant. There's a seventh reason. This is one way God will ensure that peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation are in heaven. There are still many, many language groups, people groups on this earth today who have never heard the gospel. But think about this. Some remote tribe who has never heard the gospel yet has babies who die They're even now populating heaven with that very specific tribe. I'll give you an eighth reason. Jesus blessed little children. 
He blessed little children, Matthew 18, and there are no examples of Jesus ever blessing anyone in open rebellion against God. There's a ninth reason. The major judgment passages of the New Testament include sins that infants are incapable of committing. Sexual immorality, idolatry, drunkenness, reviling, and so forth. Those are for those with a moral conscience. One more reason. In Ezekiel 16.21, God describes the slaughter of children who are born into pagan families. And these children are slaughtered. And you know what he calls them? He says, they are my children. He claims them as his. He claims them as his. Oh, Rachel's bitter weeping. Oh, her tears shed uncontrollably. Can the sovereignty of God, can the providence of God handle even the seemingly unrecoverable tragedy of the death of a baby? Well, Revelation 21.4 says famously that in the final kingdom, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And you might say, but what happened to all the tears I cried over my little one? I can't get those back. What happened to all the tears I've cried over all the losses of my life? I can't ever get those tears back. Yes, you can. In Psalm 56, David recounts a time when he was captured by the Philistines. All hope is gone. And he speaks of his tears. In verse 8, he asks God to do something. He says, put, your, put my tears in your bottle. And then he affirms, are they not all in your book? Are you saying that God has a bottle, as it were, in which he catches every tear? And he has a book, as it were, in which the reason for every tear is recorded? Why would God do that? The very next verse in Revelation 21, after God promises to wipe away every tear, the Lord Jesus makes a proclamation to us, and here's why. Revelation 21, 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Listen, only God can dry your tears by giving back in abundance all that was lost to you. So how does the sovereignty of God, how does the providence of God hold up even in the case of the loss of a baby? Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. In the sovereignty and providence of God, the babies you have lost will come home. Actually, we need to make a technical adjustment there. The babies you have lost are home and you will join them. And as a mother or father, you may with certainty look forward to the day when you're reunited, when you and your lost babies come running together. Why? Because we serve a God who is sovereign. We serve a God of providence who does not ask your permission, nor does he obligate himself to explain himself to you But in that day, you will be reunited around the glorious throne of Christ. If 
if, there's one more if, and it's a big one. If you want to see your lost babies in heaven, you must be there as well. Because unlike the tiny child who died, you have rebelled against God. You have shaken your fist at God. You have purposefully violated His holiness. And God has stoked the fires of hell to receive you in just eternal punishment. And while the slaughtered boys of Bethlehem did not have to ask for forgiveness because God simply gave it, gave it to them, you do have to ask for forgiveness. They didn't rebel. You have. Listen, if you're hearing this and you've lost a little one in the ultimate tragedy of death, my heart goes out to you. It is pain of an unimaginable flavor. But I also tell you this, if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you only have one hope of ever seeing that baby again. And that is that you would humble yourself under the mighty hand of God such that God would freely forgive you. And wouldn't that be the most amazing thing? Listen to the sovereignty and the providence of God. How amazing would this be that God took from you your precious little one such that you would turn to Christ and be saved and ultimately be reunited anyway. How glorious would that be? Listen. The sovereignty of God is bigger and more massive than you can possibly imagine. And the providence of God, the working out of His sovereignty, is more staggeringly wise than you can possibly imagine. And it's my hope that you will embrace the might and the safety of our big God. That you would trust Him and that you too would join the confidence that the writer of Psalm 91 gives us he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Let's pray. We trust you, God. We trust you. You are our big God. Your sovereignty your providence is more than we can possibly wrap our minds around and it is not our place to try. It is our place only to believe you that when you say that for those who love God, for those who have been called according to your purpose, that all things work together for good. We believe you. And I would pray for one who is watching who has not yet believed, who has not come to faith in Christ. For them, all things will not work together for good. For them, all things will be culminated in a fiery, hellish, eternal end to this life. But I pray, Lord, that even in this moment, the Holy Spirit would be bending their heart and bending their will to follow Jesus Christ such that the sovereign plan of God would be worked out that someday they too would be reunited with all who have believed on Christ. Let that be the case this day. And for those who are listening, who are hurting, who are in pain, who are believers in Christ, and yet they are under the thumb of a disciplining father, I pray that they would have the faith to see that all things will work together for good. 
and that your sovereignty is bigger than they could imagine and your providence is more wise than they could possibly fathom. And that there will be a day when they look back in awe of how perfect your plan was. Let this day become the day when we trust you at a level never before seen in our lives. In you we place our trust. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.